Follow the human journey into the world of volunteering with Shizar Robinson, consultant at the Shankalpa Rural Development Society and former ambassador of the Shelter for Children in India. Shazar candidly shares her journey with volunteering and talks about the light and dark side of giving time. She speaks about the conditionality of volunteering and how it was moving to a place within herself of giving without expectation of receiving anything that was the gateway to receiving so many unexpected gifts. Shazar also talks about how her work at a children's project in India caused her to question why there were so many abandoned children on the streets in India that led her to her next project that focuses on cleverly harnessing year-round water supply in rural areas. This is a truly fascinating story in inquisitive thinking that underlies the true importance and almost sacred nature of water. Let's face it, charitable giving, whether time or money, can be an awkward process for many of us as it can bring up all sorts of fears and worry relating to lack and scarcity against a backdrop of the desire of wanting to be seen as generous and good. However, this conversation in which Shazar speaks very openly and with great vulnerability about her own journey with giving provides a safe space for you to consider your own relationship with giving. So enjoy Shazar. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Volunteering is what we'll be deep diving into today with my guest, Shazar Robinson. Shazar, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryn, very much. Thanks for having me here. So one of the questions I like to um, ask my guests right at the start, because it is called WA Real, when we look at the WA part, is, is your connection to WA. Now, you grew up here. That's right. Yes, I did. Yeah. So, and I understand out in the middle of nowhere in quite an isolated conditions. Tell me, what was that like? I think it was one of the best childhoods you could ever have. Why was that? Because I was in the bush and I had space. And apart from my father's edicts of don't do this and don't do that, I could roam around anywhere. There was no stranger danger. There was no... Uh, none of the stuff that you have these days you know if I want feel, felt like to go out in the paddock and play in the old rubbish dump where I could dig up old bottles and and bits of metal and goodness knows what then I could do that it was no problem I had a huge tree a big old sort of wattle tree that I had um, I had some old saddles on that wattle tree and they were my horses right and I used to I used to ride these branches that were a bit springy and that was my I that was my I was by myself so I had this huge imaginary place in my head and I think if I'd been in the city it would have been really different yeah and where was it you grew up Murchison Murchison yeah about 120 miles then it was miles miles out of Kew yes so that's pretty far out yeah we yeah, had yeah. one mail truck a week and I used to get up in the high branch of the wattle tree and watch for the mail truck for hours because you could see the dust coming, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because they were all dirt roads then. Outstanding. Mm. And, um, and then you went to boarding school? Yes, that was a bit different. That's a change of tone of voice, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went, to, um, I went to boarding school and I didn't like it very much. I guess that was kind of necessary. Well, yeah, it was, except that I think I went a bit young. But I, I remember, because I did School of the Air, well, I did, you know, like correspondence. My mum taught me. And then I remember once coming down, we had, we, we had one of our, my mum's aunts had the shop at um, Palm Beach Jetty down in Rockingham. And that was our holiday. We would go down there for holidays and that was brilliant you know because yeah. you were at the seaside I could go fishing she had little rowing boats I could go rowing uh, heaps of stuff there but one time dad and mum wanted to go on a holiday themselves and they put me into Rockingham Primary School for only a week or something rather, <laughs> so they could go away well it didn't last more than one morning they came to see me at assembly and I was ran out of assembly and refused to go back so that was my beginning of school which was just like you know terrified me because it was such a bushy but then yeah. finally I came to boarding school but my two older sisters were already at that school so I wasn't just totally thrown in the deep end 
Right. Mm. And how did you find boarding school? I didn't like it very much. Why was that? Because it wasn't home? wasn't home. I didn't have my horse. There was no space. I walked into the classroom and the, and the, and the teacher said to me, and hey, what's your name, dear? And I said, my name then was Susan. I said, Susan Robinson. And she said, oh, we can't have you. We've already got one of you. And I was like, what? And I ran, I ran out of the class. And it took her ages to get me to come back in again. Because <laughs> she was, of course, only joking. But yeah. I didn't know she was joking. So, yeah, right from the beginning, boarding mm. school wasn't all that great. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, you know, kids who were really good at sport, they fitted in yeah. at boarding school. But I wasn't, so I didn't really fit in too well. Do you feel fortunate to have grown up in Western Australia? Yes, I do, totally. Why I think that? space. Space, you know, we have so much space. <laughs> we just have like sky and space and sea and yeah, really lucky. Mm. And opportunity, we have a tremendous amount of opportunity. Uh, so yeah, I feel very lucky. Uh, mm. But I think I'm also a very lucky person. You know, what I'm. Is that? Because many things come my way, you know, I, I, many things come my way. I have, I have really good friends, I have, I always have enough, I always have, yeah, I always have enough. I'm not wealthy, I don't own a bunch of stuff, but I always have enough. So I think that m my life has been incredibly fortunate. Uh, I, 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 used, I used to say, and I still do say sometimes, that... I never had to sleep under a bridge yet. You know, I don't, I don't have heaps of stuff, but everything I need always comes to me. Mm. Uh, so I've been pretty close to it. <laughs> 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 but I never really had to sleep under a bridge. So mm. um, I think that I'm really fortunate. When did you... Um, it's interesting you say that, everything you need comes to you. Um, have you always known and lived by that? Or is... You started to work it out mm, for later. a long time. For a long time, I've lived like that. Yeah, yeah. Probably since. I mean, things were weren't always easy and 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 great. You know, I had some tough times when I was when I was younger. But um, I think essentially, I've lived by that for a long time. Hmm. Hmm. So volunteering, serving others. Where does that come in, the, the Shazar story? Is it something that was role modelled from a young age or is it something that's no. grown, grown from within you? No, it's... Oh, well, yeah, I mean, there's two sides to that. There's a side that's the negative side. The side that I was taught as a kid hmm. was that if I anticipated what was needed before it was needed and provided it, I would be okay. I would be seen, I would maybe be seen and I would be, um, uh, I would get what I needed. Can you give me an example of that? An example of that was that um, I used to watch my dad carefully yeah. And when he needed his a lighter for his cigarettes or his slippers or his drink or whatever it was, I could be there and give that before he said, can you get that for me? Yeah. And when I did that, then I was sort of seen more... I was always trying to get his, his approval, I guess. Right. So if I look at volunteering in a negative way... Now, so maybe I started from the wrong side here... But if I look at volunteering from a negative a way, hey, we all need a catalyst. Yeah, but I make what I do is I make myself needed so that I get recognition. Mm. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's the that's the dark side of it. The mm. the and that I learned very young. 
And when I get dark now, I go, oh, that's all I do is just do make everybody need me so that I'm needed. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but actually... <laughs> a bit of drama. In that. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of drama. But that doesn't happen too often. But volunteering as such, this part probably started, or the, the, the thought of it started quite a long time ago, maybe, maybe even 25 years ago. And I met a guy called Paul Dunn, who's um, an interesting man. And he was uh, comparing a movie that was on here in Perth. And it was about, oh, it was called The Why or The Big Question or something around yeah. that. But he talked about the concept of creating wealth so you could give back. Right. And I went... Yeah, I really like that idea. So I started to work with that. And I actually spent quite a lot of money doing courses to create wealth so I could give back. And then about, um, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I'd spent quite a lot of money on a particular course. And then the guy came over to Perth and wanted to sell me some more stuff. And I'm going like, this isn't really working for me. I'm not creating all this wealth so I can give back. What's happening? And then this guy says to me in this individual session where he was trying to get me to buy more courses, he said, you should buy this course because... And I went, look, you know, really, I, I'm, I'm not ready to do that right now. I don't have that money. And he looked at me and he said, Shazar, do you want to be a bag lady? And I was like, excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> I know you're laying a fear trip on me yeah. and I'm out of here. And from that, I went home and I took all the course material that I had and I chucked it all in the recycling bin and I went, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. And I shifted, I changed it from that point. So actually, he was a good catalyst for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? He shifted my point of view completely. From where to where? From from that striving to make money so that I could give back. Mm. And I went, this is not working. I have to do something different. Um, and then, I, and actually this gets to be a long story, but I had an, a, a big realisation that it was my place to, actually I was here to support the earth. Mm. And then I had another realization. In How did a, that turn up? Oh, that that turned up in Peru. Actually, I was on a on a uh, trip to Peru with some really good friends and mentors of mine. And on the last day, we were in this incredible temple, ancient place, and we did a ceremony um, at that place. And I found myself lying face down on the earth after the, the end of the ceremony with the sensation of I thought I came to Peru for me and what I understood then that I came to Peru because I needed to see that I wasn't actually here for me I was here for for Mother Earth so that was really strong for me mm. then the next um, step in that was when I realized that I had been waiting for somebody to come to me and say, look, I'm doing this great work, why don't you come and help me? And I suddenly went like, oh, actually it's not up, it's not up to somebody else to invite me, it's up to me to invite myself into something that somebody else is doing if I want to support that. So I... I read your blog post about that, uh -huh. 180 degree turn on volunteering. Yeah. yeah. So from that point, then I met a whole bunch of Indian people and I went to India and I went to see what they were doing and I landed up at this shelter for kids um, and just fell in love with the kids, which is really unusual for me because I never had kids. I never really been into kids. Everybody was like, what are you doing working with kids? You know, you don't even like kids. Well, yeah, I worked with those kids for about six years. I lived uh, at the shelter for six months of the year and just hung out with the kids and did everything that I could do from building their website to sticking plaster on their, on their cuts to uh, everything. 
Yeah. Mm. I'm still very connected with that shelter, with mm. those kids. Um, it's interesting, so, yeah. the, the switch there you were saying about waiting for something to happen. Mm. And then all of a sudden the, the penny drops. Mm. That you can just go and do it. Yeah. You know, instead it sounds like you've had a couple of conditions set up that have to be met before you could do it. And they've just dropped away. I need to be wealthy, so therefore I can give back. Yep. I need to be asked to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting how we yeah. do that to ourselves. Mm. <laughs> so Yeah. That that was a was very strong realization and once I once I got that then I understood that I didn't have to I didn't have to have any any conditions I could mm. just do what I was drawn to do and when I did that really everything would come yes you know, everything comes I don't it takes a lot of tension out of life doesn't it yeah I mean sometimes I still get into like oh no I haven't got but you know not like I used to yeah yeah so you said earlier on there's a, there was like a, a dark side to um, volunteering, the making, you know, by doing something you, you're needed and then it gives you, a, you know, externally it gives you a place in the world. What, what's the light side of volunteering? The light side is that actually volunteering, you know, people say, People often say to me, oh, you're so amazing, you're so generous, you're so this, you're so that. Yeah, okay, fine. But, you know, when, when I do the work that I do, I get so much. You know, it's like, it's, it, just, it just comes back in waves. Yeah. It comes back in waves. It's not, in the end, I do it for myself. I really do, you yeah. know. I mean, yeah, it looks like I'm doing it for everybody else, but really I'm doing it for me. Yeah. Because when I when I go to India now, what I'm doing now, I go to India and I work in India and I do all this stuff, every day I learn stuff. Mm. And it, the other part about it is it's the, the, the learning of that is also about this learning of finding that place where it's in balance, where you are clear, where you are not getting your own ego stuff in the way, where you're not getting your own, it has to be this way, your own control, your own, all of that stuff is not getting in the way. It's looking for that place where it's the balanced place. And that's the place where it's the place, the dark isn't, the dark is always present. Yes. But because the light is always present, but that balanced place is the place of, um, who am I really in this? Mm. And being in in India, stripped away from all the comfort zone stuff that you have here. Is that it like India to take you to a place like that? <laughs> no, nothing at all, you know. It's like in every moment. Yes. You know? So that's the the joy of it and the gain of it, the the the, the wealth of it is being given that opportunity to continually look and see who am I in this. Hmm. Uh, so it sounds like there's almost like a, a bigger inner journey to the volunteering. Totally. As totally. well as the external. Yeah, absolutely there is, completely. Hmm. Because uh, if that was not there, it would be... If, yeah, it would be all unbalanced. Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it, just sitting here reflecting on it, that um, what it what it what I imagine it gives you is so very nourishing compared to the um, the shallowness of oh, I feel needed. Oh yeah, yeah. Because to me, feeling needed sounds very um, very transactional. Yes. And you know, one of the things I learned. Um, several years ago was that many of my um, sort of relationships with past girlfriends and stuff was very much on a transactional and often that was around help mm -hmm. you know so if I help her then she'll 
see mm-hmm. me as indispensable and then that hopefully will lead to all the good stuff of love and intimacy and, and closeness um, but it's by doing rather than being mm. whereas I find particularly with the podcast if I can give me then just wealth of stuff comes back yeah is that a similar sort of feeling absolutely completely like that yeah yeah definitely and the clearer that I can be, the more I can hear the opportunities that come. How do you mean? Well, this is just an example, but the guy that I'm working with water now, with I'm working mm. with water harvesting for the farmers, and I work mm. with a small NGO, that's a not-for-profit organisation, yeah. with a young man, well, he's 35 or so, who's a villager, so he's not an educated... Well, yes, had some education, but he's not a upper-class person or mm. even a middle-class person. He's a village person. So it's his organisation, and I'm supporting him in the work that he's doing mm. for the farmers. Uh, last... A few months ago, I had been involved or been... You know, I search on the net for things yeah for information for Mm. whatever i'm always researching stuff and i found this organization called the international water water association and i was interested in what they did and then suddenly they had an award thing so i just thought oh i'll just apply for that for him Mm. and i did it without any thought that he might possibly get that award yeah but that was an opportunity that just came because i was I happen to see it. Well, I don't really believe in happening to see stuff. I I think that we're given things. I think opportunities are coming all the time. Mm. We just need to be awake and once again clear and in that balanced place, out of our own way, yeah, in order to be able to see those things. Anyway, I put this application in. Lo and behold, he won. (laughs) You know, and we've just been to Sri Lanka for him to get that award, you know. So... Yeah, that's what I mean. You know, if I can stay clear and if I can stay balanced, then I can hear and see those opportunities. Uh, mm. yeah. That's awesome being, yeah, they're clear and balanced to be able to, yeah. Because I think that all of us have opportunities all the time. I think there are opportunities arise or or gifts that are offered to us all the time. And I think if, when I'm in my head and I'm yeah. stuck in my grrr, yeah, I can't see those things. No, because yeah. so, you're a pair in your yeah. head. So the game is, you know, the play is to <laughs> get out of the way so those possibilities can be taken up or can be applied for if you like yeah Mm. yeah Yeah. Mm. that's awesome so tell me a bit more about the water project well when I was with the kids there are 170 children at that shelter now Mm. Um, I was really looking at what was happening in India? Why are there so many kids on the street? You know, these are not orphans necessarily. Some of them, about 30% of them are orphans. The rest of them are kids who are homeless kids, kids who can't be cared for because they're being cared for by the grandparent or their father's crazy or whatever. You know, they can't be cared for, so they come Hmm. to the shelter. And I started asking, why are there so many homeless kids in India? And the conclusion that I actually that came out of the work I used to do I used to be a health practitioner Mm. I worked together with Sahaj and my sister who you've also interviewed yeah so I was always looking for what was the underlying cause of dis-ease or imbalance Mm. in the health then I started to ask the same thing around the bigger picture why are there so many kids on the street and what I came out with that was when you go back to the village You see there's problems in the village, the community's breaking down. There's a huge migration of people in India. We talk about migration from war zones. Now you've got to look at migration from from lack of water. 
Mm. And that's why they're migrating. They've got no water or they're in the summertime, in the hot season, their water's run out and the farmers are migrating to the cities for work. Yeah. And now either they leave their kids and their family behind and that causes other problems or they finally end up taking their family with them and when they first get to the city, they can't even get into the slum. They're living on the street under mm. a piece of tarpaulin. The farmers. You know? The farmers, their wives, their kids, and the kids are on the street running around in between the traffic. Huh? They're the kids that knock on the window and are begging yep. or selling little things. Yeah. Mm. So these are the kids who are at high risk, and they're the sort of kids that end up in a hostel like the shelter that I was working at. So mm. I start looking at all of those kids and I'm going, why are there so many kids on the street? Oh, kids come back to the village. Why is the community breaking down? The community's breaking down because the farmers don't have enough water. Mm. And so I met the guy who I'm working with now because we also didn't have water at the shelter. And he came to help us with that problem. And then I had some other challenges at the shelter. It was... It was time for me to move on. Yeah. And so I said to him, can I come and see what you're doing and you know, maybe see if I can help what you're doing? And he was like, oh, madam. Everybody calls me madam in India. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, a, it's respect. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, madam, please, he said, come. So I went and, yeah, I just really liked what he was doing and I started to work with him. So he's doing a system which is called Borwell Recharge. So the many farmers in India have bore wells mm -hmm. because they were, they were taught that they better start getting more water. So they knew this technology. So they sunk bore wells. They sink bore wells every 50 yards. It's like, you know, like a forest of bore wells. And they think that that's a never ending thing. This, this water table underneath, well, the water table is disappearing rapidly. It's a huge problem. And what we do is we put the monsoonal rain back into the bore well. So right. we're recharging the water table. So we help the farmer, even with dried up bore wells, we can work with that. Right. So when it really does rain in the yeah. monsoon, that's being optimised. Yeah, because normally in that monsoonal rain, it just runs all off. Yes. And it takes the topsoil with it. Yeah. So we build a small pond, we collect the water into this pond, and then we have a system, a very simple system, mm. that we channel that water back into... A, a, a sort of like a false well around the bore well casing which has got slits cut into it and it's got filtration material so mm. the mud and rubbish doesn't go back into the bore well but the water goes back into the bore well and it recharges the underlying water table and then would that provide enough for the year round that will provide the farmer with water for the irrigation for the dry season yeah hmm. Hmm. and then thus reinvigorating thus reinvigorating the community, thus bringing more money back into the village, thus giving work to the landless labourers. Uh, many, many benefits from that, including as you pull more and more water out of the water table, the deeper the water table drops, the more intensive toxins are in that water table. Like yeah. in, the water, in the area where Sikanda, my, my boss, lives, his village, they have high fluoride there. Yes. So you see the little old ladies all crunched up, you know, their bones are all, all distorted from the excessive fluoride. In many mm. places in India, they have, they have high arsenic in the water. Mm. So... And we all know that's not good for you. And no, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. So those things get diluted when you put rainwater back into the bore well so that the that gets diluted so the quality of the water gets better. And then ultimately people stay in the village. They don't yep. need to go to the city. Yep. And kids don't need to have it. Yeah. Did it take much for you to get your head systemically around this? My head system what do you mean? To ask the question, why are there kids on the streets? in the hostels and then track back and then get to a, oh, water. You know, it's, it's not the most obvious thing. Like, oh, water in the village is causing streets on the kids. Uh, uh, kids on the streets, sorry. 
I don't really know how long it took me to get to that, to be quite honest. I... And does anybody else think about it in a systemic manner like that, that you met? My partner thinks about stuff like that. Hmm. He's got that sort of a brain. But I think it came out of my he- uh, my, my healing stuff, hmm. you know, because I, I was always looking at, you know, somebody comes in with a headache and you go, well, why have you not, not what can I give you to stop the headache? But why am I? Why have you got the headache? You know what's going on in the body that that is really underneath all of that. Because if you can if you can correct what what is un, underneath that, mm. say detoxify the system of the of the the toxic load that's in the system, yeah. then the symptoms, which is the headache, will go away. So the symptom is the kid on the street. Yeah, it's a symptom of something that's wrong some sort of imbalance in the country in the in 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 their world yeah yeah so if we can look at those things as the symptom you know like why do we have wars it's a symptom yeah but it it's the war isn't the problem Mm. but we so quickly get stuck in the symptom yeah and trying to fix the symptom in and of itself yeah rather than spending the time to track it back it doesn't work you've got to track it back the first thing I did was I, I uh, went and built a, I raised funds and I built a, what's called a check dam, which is a small dam which checks the flow of the monsoonal water in a small, what they call a nulla, which is a small river. Yeah. And I built that check dam in a village a um, long way away from the kids' hostel, actually. Um, but it was an area where a lot of the kids came from and where some of our teachers and that came from as well. And I lived in the village for, I think, I can't remember, it was three weeks or six weeks. It was a long time anyway. And it was in really hot season. It was super hot. And um, I basically raised the funds for that and we built this dam. And there was a team of uh, laborers there and one of the teachers from the school he was also helping me with that um that was my first foray into doing water harvesting i was still living and working at the school then but yeah that was pretty challenging time and living in the village with the with the family in the village very very uh isolated village actually that village had had 35 farmer suicides in the past five years. Wow. So every, everybody in that village had been affected by a farmer suicide. Uh-huh. And the farmer suicides are... Uh, nah, the government says, yeah, the farmers commit suicide because they're all addicted to drink and it's to do with debt and it's this and that, you know. Well, yeah, symptoms, it is, but symptoms, they're symptoms. all symptoms, yeah. Why does a farmer become an alcoholic because he can't face his debt because he hasn't had any water to grow his crop for how long yeah. so yeah it's interesting you're the second guest in two weeks that's talked about uh, decreasing water in the India Pakistan area really oh. mm. ah. the other one last week was a guy called Michael Hillard who looks at who looks at geopolitics and looks at how climate change is, is, is meaning that the rain in Pakistan is not going where it needs to and is going further and further and further into India, which will leave Pakistan as a dry country. Yeah. And when that happens, what will happen, given the tension between the two countries? Well, I mean, that happens even between states in India. Really? Yeah, because India's an amazing country and they've got such huge, major, massive, beautiful rivers. You know, you drive through through India, it's not like if you drive east here from here, you go into desert, right? Mm. If you just drive from from Mumbai across east, you cross a river, you go a bit further, you cross a river, you know, it's like it, it doesn't do what Australia does. Mm. Now. But if you've got a river that's running through two states, as we have in Karnataka, which is where I live now when I'm there, the river, the main river that's coming into Karnataka, is they're fighting over that river all the time because the guys up in the next state are taking water from that and who gets the rights to that water and who's built a dam where. And 
it's crazy stuff. You don't even have to be Pakistan, India to get the fights. Right. You know, it, there's fights all over with it with water. Hmm. Mm. It's interesting water. We we seldom spent much time thinking about it. Well, we better start thinking about it because it's one of the most major things on the planet that right now is a big problem. Right now, it's this made you more aware of water globally and locally yes. here in West Australia. Yes. And what have you learned? I've learned that the principles that we apply in India can be applied pretty much anywhere. That we need to work locally with local solutions rather than with big solutions because the big solutions tend not to work particularly well. I, I just understand that none of us really understand that water is a, basically it's a sacred substance. Mm. And while we treat it like a resource and something we can just, that's there for us mm. to use as we want to use it, we are in, going to be in big trouble pretty soon and we already are in trouble. Mm. Even here. Absolutely, we're here. Completely here. You know, we can't ignore it here. We can't ignore it anywhere. Mm. But, uh, but we are. You know, I mean, yeah, it's not so obvious here. It's very obvious in India. You know, in India, if you if you look at land that's on a little river and you think, oh, and that might be a good place to build a whatever. I remember we were looking for a a, a piece of land where we thought we'd build a, a farmer producer organization headquarters and there was one piece that was down by a, a small river and I said to Sikander well we should go and look at that because it's near the water he said oh no you wouldn't want to be there the smell is really bad because that small river is really polluted because people use the rivers as the place to dump the garbage as the place to wash mm. the stuff away mm. whereas here we go Oh, it's the river, you know, we have our big houses on the river and, you know, being on the river is prestige, yeah. Mm. Mm, not in India. Yeah. Right, that's interesting. Because mm. everyone's chucking stuff in there. Yeah. Because it'll just wash their garbage. Yeah. Well, it should do, but because of the high population, away. it doesn't anymore. Yeah, especially if everyone's at it. Yeah. Mm. They it's end up looking like drains instead of rivers, you know. Mm. It's interesting to consider what you said about water being a sacred substance. Well, I think I think that we need to give rivers and water the same rights as human beings. Hmm. Why is that? Because until we do, we don't treat them properly. Until we understand that without this, without this water, we're 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 dead, we're gone. Mm. You know we are what we're like eighty ninety percent water ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can go for weeks without food, but only days without yep. water. And the amount of our water that is really potable water, drinkable water on the planet is being reduced daily. And it's such a tiny amount compared to the total amount of water. And even the total amount of water that's on the planet is really a small amount. And water doesn't get produced. We're not, it, 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 it's a finite substance. It is. Yeah. This amount of water is how much we've got. We haven't got more. We're not going to make more tomorrow. It doesn't happen. Rain comes, but rain comes because water went up there. Mm. So it comes back down again. <laughs> it's not something we can just manufacture. No. So we better take care of what we got. And if we can help people to understand that it's a sacred substance, that it needs respect, then, then we can change something. Mm. Then we can then we'll take care of it. Until we do that, we'll continue to run the tap while we brush our teeth, 
run the shower while we go and weigh ourselves or whatever we do because we're waiting for the hot water to come or whatever it is, you know, we'll continue to throw that water away down the drain. Does it make you angry at times? Yeah. Yeah, it makes me sad too. Sad. Yeah, yeah. I get quite sad sometimes. But then, you know, sometimes if I get dark, then I go, oh, what's the point of doing anything? You know, what am I doing? Mm. I'm helping this farmer and that farmer and the next farmer, and so what, you know? But, um, yeah, I just... Uh, if, you do, if nobody does anything, well, <laughs> nothing happens at all. So that I'm only one person, but I do what I can do. And then if, if somebody sees, oh, she's doing that, I could do that, then, then a ripple happened, so um, more, more can happen. Hmm. But, yeah, sometimes I get sad about it. Hmm. Actually, I think I wrote that. You might have read that, but that is a part of what happened was that when I was at the kids' shelter, there was, I had a period of time where I was just crying all the time. Yeah. I was crying so much. I would cry about, I'd hear, we were on the edge of the, what they call the jungle, it isn't really jungle anymore because it's mm. all cut, but we're on the edge of the jungle and the, the, village, the local villagers used to cut the trees for firewood and you know, I'd see them cutting down this tree and it was a big tree and they can cut the smaller stuff, you know but they'd be cutting down this tree and I would just flip out and start to cry like crazy. I would cry seeing, seeing a, a young couple camped by the railway station on a piece of cardboard with their little kid, you know, trying to cook their dinner. I would, I would cry about so many things and I was like, why am I doing all this crying? And then I happened to listen to a tape I had by a man called Andrew Harvey, who's a, um, a mystic teacher and he said that if you don't experience heartbreak then you haven't really seen what's going on and until you experience the breaking of your heart and that breaks it open for you to really see what's going on until that happens you won't mm. really do something yeah and that's break open not break in half yeah break open break mm. open and when I heard that it was that was one of those serendipitous moments for yeah. me when I heard that I was like oh that's why I'm crying all the time mm. and once I heard that and once I got that then I then I then the crying stopped that yeah. that distress stopped because yeah. I understood what it was about hmm hmm uh. <laughs> mm. It's yeah. It's right. That's resonating with me at the moment. Yeah, that's okay. I yeah. Because it yeah, it can't be easy to be feel feel drawn to do something which then smashes your heart over and over and over again. Yeah, you know, one day I, I was driving out of Mumbai on the way back up to the shelter, and I saw a lady on this busy road and you know in India when they wash clothes they hit them on a stone or on a concrete or whatever mm. you know that's the way they wash their clothes and she was pulling water right in the edge of the traffic pulling water out of a broken burst water main and she was washing her clothes on that on a piece of broken pavement stone mm. there in almost in the middle of the traffic and I'm like nobody nobody should have to live like that now so sometimes you see things or you, you yeah sometimes I see things that really really bring home what's going on on this planet you know we an example is people go, when I come back from India, go, oh, I'm late because the traffic was so bad. And I go like, what traffic? What are you talking about? Yeah. There is no traffic here. Mm. You know, people go, oh, the internet was down. Oh, there's something. You know, this is really first world problem stuff. But 
you know, when, when you see stuff in India like that, you go like, yeah, this is what's really, this is, this is what's happening on our planet. Mm. And it's not that far away. And I always said, I always say to people, you know, like these kids that I was working with in, in, in the shelter, they're our kids. They're not somebody else's kids. All kids are our kids. You know, they're, they're, they're the future of our planet, these mm. kids. So everybody needs to look after these kids. We all need to look after all the kids that are on the planet. Hmm. <laughs> Tell me about, um, well, this might, well, this must be getting heavy at times. Tell me about hope in the Middle East and where you see signs of hope. Hope is in everybody's smile. Hope is in the ladies in the village inviting you in and offering you tea even when they don't have anything else. Mm. Hope is in, in, in their hearts, you know. And people sort of sometimes say, oh, I couldn't go to India, I would find that too hard. Well, yeah, there's the hard and there's the dark side and there's all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But the smiles of the people, the, 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 the welcome of the people, the mm. heart of the people. I was, uh, came, came into Bangalore one night and as I came out of the international airport, I went to change some money. And I went to the money changer and there's a young guy at the money changer and I gave him $100 and he changed the money. And as he gave it back to me, he smiled at me, he looked at me, total looked at me, and as he smiled at me, he gave me his heart. Yeah. Now, what money changer ever in Perth Airport would give you their heart with your change? Indian people like that. Hmm. And... Very real. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's plenty of not real and there's plenty of corruption and all the rest of it too, but especially in the villages, especially with the just the, you know, the guy who drives you to the wherever, you know, these people are, they're ready to be totally open with you. Mm. And that's the, that's what gives you the hope when you, now hope's a really weird word, but yeah. that, that's the joy I of it. No, it's okay, but that's the joy of it. And the joy of it when I work in the office with the with the boys and who who I'm working with, you know, I just love those people so much, you know. It's like Sikanda, this little guy, he's a little guy, he's way shorter than me and is and we travel a lot together because we're always going to the village or whatever. You know, he's just such a beautiful person. He's so positive. He's so he's so generous. Mm. You know, he's just like hugely generous. There's there's when when there are people on the planet are so generous, so ready to give their their last little bit, so ready to yeah, then. Of course, we have possible future. Um, mm. Otherwise, we may as well give up now. <laughs> you know, mm. it's um, it's interesting because I, I had a podcast guest a while back who Rebecca, and she was talking about giving, or, or almost she was giving this idea of, of putting a signal out into the world, her, her from her heart, and not necessarily waiting for the echo to come back as in the as you were talking about earlier almost like the dark side of volunteering which is uh, putting something out to feel needed putting it out mm. expecting the echo to yeah. come back and and just doing it for doing it's sake and sometimes the echo does come back in in ways you didn't ever expect sometimes it comes back completely left field mm. you have no idea that it was going to come from there yeah yeah <laughs> hmm. And yet we get so caught up in our conscious analytical brain, as I call it. And, uh, you know, oh, I'll do this and I'll expect that back. Or da, 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 da. It's all very transactional. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that indigenous people or simple people or maybe village people, I'm, 
I don't know, but it, I, you know, I read quite a bit of stuff about um, indigenous knowledge and mm. the way of being and stuff. Recently, I've been reading a, a book about American indigenous people and their potlatch, their their giveaway ceremony, and that has a relationship with that. And when the when the white people came to America, then they didn't understand that giveaway thing, and the American the Indian people would indigenous people would give something to them and they go oh, that's a lovely thing and they put it on their mantelpiece and it'd sit there and then the Indian guy would come along again and say I want that back please and that's where the Indian giving story you know you're an right, Indian yeah. giver means you give me something and then you want it back yeah. well actually they didn't want it back but they wanted it to circulate yes so they wanted to, I'm going to give that to you it's something of value from me, but I'm giving it to you. I'm passing on the energy of that. Yeah. But in that, there's a sort of an expectation that you're going to pass it on also. Yes. Or pass on something else like it's that. Circulate. So it circulates. Yeah. But it doesn't circulate, I give you, you give me. Not like Christmas. Oh, have I got a present for that person? Because they're going to give me a present. You know, it's not that... Uh, Type of arrangement. Yeah. It's not transactional. Yes. So you don't know where it's coming so from. It's logical, isn't it? As opposed to from here in the heart. Mm. 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 And I guess it must be fascinating working with um, villagers in India because it's almost, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's, it must be almost like peering into what life was like before the Industrial Revolution started to take a grip. That you know, we are all part of, you know, from industrial revolution, we've had wars, we're now in information revolutions, further and further and further, more conscious mind, etc., etc. But to actually work with people on the land. Yeah, I recently went to what Sikanda called a remote village, but interestingly, it's only an hour out of quite a big city. But that village is a village of only about 300 people, and those people are tribals. Right. And they are cattle people. They own cattle. They own, and they live right on the edge of a jungle, like a, a, a government jungle. Mm. And they had two hand pumps in that village. Mm. That was all the water they had. They had no, uh, I don't think they had any electricity. Now they've got solar. But we went into one of the houses of those villages. That house was such a simple place, you know. It's like the what they have, they have nothing. But it's very interesting. They, they welcome you in, offer you something to drink. Um, yeah. Sometimes when I go in places like that, I feel so privileged mm. because it's... It's rare to be able to um, be invited in to a, a home like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not sure I could live like that. Mm. Mm. But the village that I lived in when we did the dam, it, that was pretty basic. Mm. But I mean, it was a, it, it was a. a a much more advanced house than we had electricity. Um, and we had a air cooler that they used to put on at night that had uh, some sort of water in it, but it was so noisy that it sounded like a jet engine. Yeah. And we used to, when I first went there, all the bedding is sort of stacked up in this other room outside every day. And then the, that room was the main uh, sitting room where you eat and everything. And actually there was a day bed in there. Mm. Um, and in the nighttime they would put on this air cooler thing that was just like, whoa, too much. And in the beginning I said, well, actually I'll sleep in that being the foreigner and thinking I need my own space, haha. <laughs> Something you don't get much of in India. No, I'll, no. I'll sleep in that room. Well, they were like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll sleep here. That'll be good. Anyway, I went to bed and I'm lying on the floor on the, on the bed 
everybody else got their mattresses and put them in the main room with the air cooler. The main room's not much bigger than, well, not, not as big as this, actually. And I'm lying down in this mattress, and after a little while I go like, there's something walking on me. Uh, some sort of bugs in here. <laughs> and there were these little black beetle things, and they were everywhere. And I was like, I can't sleep in here. <laughs> these beetles are going to take me away in the night. So I shook everything out and very sheepishly went and put right. my mattress down in the main room with everybody else, you know, with the with the air cooler. So, you know, like everybody lives on top of everybody else. Mm. You don't have that sense of... This is mine. This is yours. Yeah. And sometimes when I come home in the evening... Like boarding school where everyone lives on top of it. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> but you still had your cupboard. Yes, true. You know, you still there was still that sense of this is mine. This is mine. Don't come in this area. Even yeah. Even if it is pretty small. Yeah. But there even, you know, sometimes I would go out on the veranda and sit on the swingy chair they had just to have some space on my own. And they'd come out and they'd go, come, come, come inside. You know, you, why are you out here by yourself? You know, I was like, I need some space. That's why I'm here yeah. by myself. <laughs> yeah. Space, you don't get much. So if we, um, if we come out of your experiences of, of volunteering and then we reflect on your journey and, and look at sort of everyday people here in Western Australia, right? What, what sort of um, advice or guidance could you give someone on like the journey towards giving more? Because we're all so we can be all so very tightly wound up. It's all about me. It's all about my space. Get out, get out, um, and all up here in the head. Yet that drop into the heart and wanting to give in the way that you've talked about. What are some of the things or advice that you could share? Does that make sense? I mean, I think practicing giveaway is actually really a, a really useful thing. Mm. You know, really practicing that look around what you don't need, give it away. Mm. Yeah. Uh, give it away without the expectation of anything necessarily coming back. Mm. I think that's that's useful. We have too much stuff. Yeah. We have so much stuff. And stuff clutters not only, I think, clutters not only your space, but it also clutters your internal space. Yeah. So I think that's a useful thing to, to practice. I think the other thing to practice too is to read more and watch less, you know, turn mm. off the TV, don't read the newspapers, it's all rubbish, <laughs> you know, it's not, you, you get the news anyway, but that stuff also clutters up our heads, mm. makes our heads full of a fear thing, and holding is about fear, you know, I'm afraid there's not enough for me. Mm. I'm afraid somebody might attack me. I'm afraid yeah. somebody might come over my back fence. I'm afraid, whatever. Yeah? yeah. And that's promoted by TV. It's promoted by newspapers. It's promoted by all of that stuff. Mm. Yeah? So if we can reduce our exposure to, to the things that, that promote fear, then we are more open to being able to be mm. generous or to be... Um, to give of our our possessions or our space or our whatever that is. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. As I, as I listen to you, it's that making a transition from transactional. Yeah. And fear and lack. Hmm. To dropping into. Yeah. Relational. Yeah, and it, it's also dropping into a place probably of trust. Mm. You know, sort of like ra rather than coming from a place of fear, coming from a place of trust. Mm. Um, if you reflect on your journey, what have you learned about yourself? 
that I never stop learning. <laughs> mm. You know, that there's always more to see. Um, uh, I, and I've learned also to come out of the dark places quicker. Right. And I've also learned to be able to ask my friends to help me when I need to. Mm. And I've learned that if I have something going on, you know, e- even if I have something going on with Sikanda, with the guy that I'm working with in India, you know, it, it is to if I think he's pissed off with me or if I think something's happening, I need to ask him. Mm, get it out. You know, and sometimes I ask him, he looks at me, he's like, what are you talking about, you know? And I'm just like, well, I just felt it, so I wondered, you know, like that. So it's like get stuff out of the way as soon as you can because you haven't got time to muck around with that. Mm. It gets in the way and it stops me doing what I'm here to do. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I like that, coming out of the darkness quicker. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that you don't... I'm, I have some really hard times, and especially oh, when yeah. I first go back to India. I'll sit on my bed and cry at night and go, like, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, well, I'm part crazy. Of necessary, isn't it? Well, yeah, somehow. It's part yeah. of the human and journey and yeah. experience. But it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm able to move out of that faster now. Mm. I understand the ways to help myself to move out of that. Mm. What are some of the things that help you move Ah, oh, reading stuff, you know. Um, um, I have a couple of uh, helpful, inspirational um, card things that I read. There's a guy called Barry Brailsford from New Zealand who's a very wise person who's done some absolutely stunningly ir- inspirational cards. They're not like tarot cards, but they're a sort of card that you'll take and it tells you a nature story and it gives you insights. Mm. I use those. I talk to my sister on Skype. I talk to my partner on Skype. You know, I go, oh, this is happening. And they go, it's okay. You're supposed to be there. Mm. You know, pat, pat, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) So, so, you know, I have a lot of support for the things that I, that I need to be doing. Mm. Yeah. Um, If we look over the next several years, two, three, four years, um, do you have any, goals, aspirations for the water project and yourself? Oh, I, I sort of stopped doing goal setting. I don't really do that anymore, but I, I would like to write more. I write quite a lot, but mm. I would really like to write more. But that's a like to, you know, it's actually doing mm. it is another story. To continue to support in whatever way I can do best. I think I have to say that because I can go, oh, yeah, I want to write a book or, oh, yeah, I want to get on TED Talk or whatever. Yeah, okay, that's all out there and that would be great. But in the meantime, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And allow the possibilities to to arise. I mean, like the possibility of having a podcast with you. Mm. You know, I mean... Happened to meet Lucy. <laughs> that was yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. Was, it, was that I happened to? Yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. Exactly. It wasn't so, until later did I work out who your sister was. Yeah. <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah. Um. What do you do as part of a daily routine or practice to keep you sort of grounded? Actually, it's quite different here as to in India. In India, I have a very specific practice that I do. I wake up early, I meditate, I um, drink lemon juice, I I write, and then I wash my clothes because I have to do all my hand clothes washing by hand, and then I get ready, I clean my space, and I get ready for my day. Mm. Yeah, basically I do that in the evening quite often I'll go for a walk and I read a lot because I don't watch stuff there Yeah. here it's different because I have other people around me and I tend to conform to their um, schedules routines. and routines as well so things change a bit Yeah. yeah but still I, I here I 
walk on the beach, I swim, I, you know, do those things mm. to keep myself grounded. But it's different here because, and I cook, because I love to cook. But now also I can cook in India too, because now I live in a place where I have a, where I have something, I have a one burner yeah. and I have a small fridge. Right. And there's a weekly street market outside, so I can cook for myself, which is really great. So those are the things that help me to settle into me. Because mm. I find cooking to be really creative and to be really play, you know, like that's a grounding sort of play. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. And the last question I ask my guests is, it's a hypothetical one, but it, I always find it, it draws out fun answers is if you could take one little nugget of information and upload it into the collective consciousness and so we all just get it, what would that be? Water is sacred. Yeah, that. Mm. If we understood that, we would understand a lot of things. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's interesting that you asked me that because I didn't know that. You know, before you asked me and I said it, I didn't know that that's what I would say. Yeah. Thank you. That's all right. Seems to have brought something up for you. Yeah, thank you. Mm. If people want to reach out to you, find out what you're up to, help, support in any way, how can they do that? Can, can they email me? They can phone me. My email is info, I-N-F-O, at waterharvestfoundation.org. And my phone number is 0402 There you go. You're the first guest who's given out the phone <laughs> number. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Bryn. I've super enjoyed it. Great, On thanks. many, many levels. Mm. Yeah. Thank you very much.